Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.CanadaEHX.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On the ice, he had fire in his eyes. It fueled his legendary exploits with the Montreal Canadiens. His passion helped his team capture three Stanley Cups so far and made him an icon of the people of Quebec. But there was another side to that fire, a temper that burned so intensely, it sometimes got the best of him. And when it led to a suspension, Quebecers rose up and defended him. I'm Craig Baird, this is Canadian History X, and today I'm going to share you how one man helped Quebecers discover their identity. This is the story of the Richard Riot. In the National Hockey League, no team has won more Stanley Cups than the Montreal Canadiens. From 1916 to 1993, they won 24 Stanley Cups and produced over 50 Hall of Fame players. During a glorious period from 1955 to 1979, the Canadians won 15 Stanley Cups. For many fans though, no period was greater than when Maurice the Rocket Richard donned Le Bleu Blanc Rouge. Joseph-Henri Maurice Richard was born on August 4, 1921 in Montreal to a working class family. His father was a carpenter and employed with the Canadian Pacific Railway, while his mother raised eight children in their tiny home. Maurice started skating when he was only four on the frozen rivers and ponds of his area and shortly after began playing hockey. His father eventually built a backyard rink for Maurice to practice on until he was 14 when he finally entered organized hockey. He loved the game so much he played on several different teams under various assumed names to get around the rules that restricted players to just one team. It did not take long for hockey fans to notice the young man who tore up the ice in Montreal especially during the 1938-39 season when he scored 133 of his team's 144 goals. The Montreal Canadiens saw this phenom in their own backyard and put him through their minor league system. Then, during the 1942-43 season, they called him up and Maurice never again played another game in the minors. In his first season in Montreal, Maurice had 11 points in 16 games. The next season he burst onto the scene with 54 points in 46 games. During the 1943-44 season, he accomplished the impossible. He scored 50 goals in 50 games. No player had ever scored 50 goals in a season to that point, let alone in 50 games. It would take until 1981 for Mike Bossy to equal that feat. His prowess on the ice was unmatched. On December 28, 1944, Maurice set another record when he scored 8 points in a single game and then later that season led the Montreal Canadiens to their first Stanley Cup since 1931.
Diaby. Inzeri. Téléphone. Yeah, but you told me that. Okay. I wanted the day off. I knew they wouldn't leave me alone. But I couldn't let the guys down. That night in 1944, Montreal beat Detroit 9-1. Maurice Rocket Richard scored eight points, five goals, three assists. A legend was born. His on-ice speed, strength, and determination earned him the name The Rocket, coined by Basil Mira of the Montreal Star. The nickname also matched Maurice's explosive personality. His teammate Jacques Plante said it was the most appropriate nickname ever given to an athlete, and he even noted that Maurice's eyes had such intensity on the ice they were like a rocket's red glare. Glenn Hall, who faced Maurice many times as an opposing goalie, said, What I remember most about Rocket was his eyes. When he came flying towards you with the puck on his stick, his eyes were all lit up, flashing and gleaming like a pinball machine. It was terrifying. Rumor has it that the Rocket was so good, the Maple Leafs offered $135,000 to the Canadians for his contract. General Manager Frank Selke stated he would sooner sell the Montreal Forum than lose Maurice Richard. Off the ice, Maurice was a quiet man who liked to spend time with his family. On the ice, he was a player who saw the game as war, a player with a take-no-prisoners attitude, which led to several on-ice altercations and league fines. Many players in English Canada, especially fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs, viewed Maurice as a thug on the ice. He was a man driven by rage, they said, who stopped at nothing, including dirty tricks to win. But to the Francophones of Quebec, he was a hero. To them, he represented French greatness in the face of English oppression, and a lot of this was to do with the political climate of the province at the time. For decades, French Canadians made up the bulk of the workforce in Quebec while bosses and owners of the companies were typically English Canadian or American. On top of that, the day-to-day -day lives of Francophones, nearly everything from education to healthcare, was governed by the Catholic Church. There was a growing feeling of unrest as Quebecers started to push back against the oppression. You'll remember from an episode from 2023 that this pushback led to the Quiet Revolution. And as this turbulence bubbled under the surface, one of the steps towards change happened during a hockey game at the Montreal Forum on March 13, 1955. Since 1951, the Montreal Canadiens were one of the best teams in the NHL. They made it to the Stanley Cup Final in 1950-51 and 1951-52, losing to the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Detroit Red Wings, respectively. They won the Stanley Cup during the 1952-53 season, but lost in the Stanley Cup Final to the Red Wings the following season. Heading into the 1954-55 season, the team was hungry to avenge the loss and prove themselves to be the best team in the league. The team was stacked with talent as well. Not only did they have one of the best players on the planet in Maurice Richard, but their roster included future Hall of Famers like Bernie Jefferon, Jean Beliveau, Bern Olmsted, Doug Harvey, Dickie Moore, Emile Bouchard, and Jacques Plante. 
By March, as the playoffs drew near, Montreal and Detroit were nearly neck and neck for the first place in the league, and many pundits believed that this was the year the Canadians would reclaim the Stanley Cup. Canadians fans watched with bated breath as Maurice Richard led the league in points and was poised to claim his first Art Ross trophy, awarded to the player with the most points in a season. Leading up to the last week of the season, the Canadians were on a tear. They had not lost a game since February 9th, over a month earlier. On March 12th, they defeated the Boston Bruins 2-1 at the Montreal Forum. But in the process, Maurice was thrown against the net by a Boston player and injured his back. The next day, the two teams were scheduled to meet again, this time at Boston Gardens. The Bruins were fighting to hold on to a playoff spot while the Canadians were doing their best to keep their winning streak alive. The stakes were high and Maurice headed into the game, injured and in a foul mood. On the train trip to Boston, he was unable to sleep because of the pain in his back. He told a Montreal reporter, My back still hurts like the Dickens. I feel beat. Despite the injury, Maurice refused to miss the game and the stage was set for an epic battle. In the first period, Dickie Moore scored his 16th goal of the season to put the Canadians up 1-0, but tempers were running high and there were seven penalties including one fight. Things took a turn for the worse for Montreal when the Bruins scored three straight goals to go up 3-1 in the second period, and Maurice took a penalty for high sticking. As they entered the third period, the Rockets' temper began to flare. Then, the Bruins went up 4-1 as their players pestered Maurice to get him to boil over. With 4.59 left in the third period, Bruins player Haleko high-sticked Maurice on the head during a Canadian's power play, cutting his forehead. The referee put his hand up to signal a delayed penalty since the Canadians had possession of the puck. But Maurice's rage bubbled over, and like Mount Vesuvius, he exploded. His eyes turned red, and as Leco dropped his gloves to anticipate a fight, the Rocket took a stick and struck it over his head and shoulders. The linesman attempted to restrain Maurice, but he broke loose and attacked Leco once more. Linesman Cliff Thompson grabbed him, but Maurice turned around and punched Thompson twice in the head, knocking him out. After everyone was separated, Maurice left the ice. He required five stitches to his head and Vince Lunny, a rider with the Montreal Stars, said his face looked like a smashed potato. For his part in the incident, Leco was given a game misconduct while Maurice received a game misconduct and an automatic $100 fine. The game continued with Tom Johnson of the Canadians scoring his sixth goal of the season, but it wasn't enough. The Canadians fell 4-2, losing their first game in weeks. But that wasn't the end, because although Maurice left the ice, Boston wasn't quite done with him yet. After the game, police were intent on arresting the Rocket and charging him with assault. Maurice's teammates blocked the door to the visitor's dressing room to prevent the police from getting to their teammate. Bruins officials convinced the officers to let the Canadians leave on condition that the NHL would handle the issue. Everyone knew that Maurice was in a lot of trouble. The Canadian press wrote, Maurice Richard, whose explosive temperament has again rocketed him into the sports headlines, finds himself Monday in familiar quarters, the National Hockey League doghouse. The man who would decide the fate of Maurice was NHL President Clarence Campbell. Clarence Campbell was born in Fleming, Saskatchewan in 1905. A Rhodes Scholar, he attended Oxford University in England and played for the Oxford University Ice Hockey Club during his time at the school. When he returned to Canada in the early 1930s, he became an executive member of the Alberta Amateur Hockey Association. 
From 1933 to 1939, he was an NHL referee and was no stranger to seeing carnage on the ice. In one incident during a playoff game between the Montreal Maroons and Boston Bruins, he was punched by Dit Clapper of the Bruins after calling Clapper a profane name. Campbell convinced the NHL to go easy on Clapper. In 1939, Campbell was fired as a referee after he made a controversial call, giving a minor penalty when a player was hit in the face with a stick. NHL president Frank Calder decided to give Campbell a job in his office after he was let go, and it quickly became apparent that Calder was grooming Campbell as his successor. After serving in the Second World War where he reached the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and was awarded the Order of the British Empire, Campbell succeeded Calder as the NHL president in 1946. And now, just over 10 years into the job, Campbell had to make his most difficult decision as league president. What to do about the rocket? Many NHL fans called for Campbell to go easy on Maurice Richard. Grant Warwick, the coach of the Hockey World Champion Penticton V, stated, If President Campbell is listening, I want to ask him on behalf of all players with me to go easy on the rocket. On March 16, 1955, Maurice Richard, Hayla Coe, Canadians' assistant manager Ken Reardon, Boston general manager Lynn Patrick, Canadians coach Dick Irvin, and NHL referee-in-chief Carl Voss attended a hearing at the NHL headquarters. Heading into the hearing, Maurice was pale and Irvin was worried that the hit to the head had given him a concussion. The Canadians coach said, I noticed the rocket looked pale and strained when he reported for practice this morning. He told me about the headache and said he hadn't slept all night. After talking with him, I immediately called Dr. Young and the doctor ordered Richard to the hospital at once. Following his trip to the hospital and getting a clean bill of health, Maurice went to the hearing. Speaking in his defense, he said he did not remember what happened in the game. He said, When I'm hit, I get mad. I don't know what to do. Before each game, I think about my temper and how I should control it, but as soon as I get on the ice, I forget all that. Speaking of his attack on linesman Cliff Thompson, he stated he thought Thompson was a Bruins player. After three hours of testimonies, Campbell brought down his judgment. Maurice was suspended for the rest of the season in the playoffs. It was the longest suspension in NHL history, and would be the longest suspension ever handed down by Campbell in his 31 years as president. Following the hearing, Campbell issued a statement. He said he did not believe Maurice had punched the linesman by accident, and cited a previous incident where Maurice had slapped a linesman. The statement went on to say, I am also satisfied that Richard did not strike linesman Thompson as a result of a mistake or accident as suggested. The time for probation or leniency has passed. Whether this incident of conduct is the product of a temperamental instability or willful defiance of the authority of the games does not matter. It is a type of conduct which cannot be tolerated by any player, star, or otherwise. According to Elmer Ferguson, a Montreal Herald reporter, Maurice heard the news from his coach, Dick Irvin. He asked if the ruling was out. Irvin was silent for a few seconds and then said, Be prepared for a shock, Rocket. You're out for the season, including the Stanley Cup playoffs. At first, Maurice didn't believe him, thinking he was playing a joke and asked if he was serious, to which Irvin responded, Sorry, that is the way it is, Rocket. No kidding. Maurice then shrugged his shoulders, said goodnight, and walked to his car. The suspension was a serious blow to Maurice, who saw his chances of winning the Art Ross Trophy evaporate. There were still three games left in the season, and it was likely someone would pass him to claim it. Maurice gave serious thought to leaving Montreal and going to Florida to get away from everything, 
but decided to stay because he wanted to support his teammates. He also didn't want fans to think he was no longer interested in the team, just because he wasn't playing. Meanwhile in Quebec, the suspension of the last three games of the season was seen as an adequate punishment, but it was universally felt that the playoff suspension was far too severe. CKAC, a French radio station, asked listeners to call in with their opinions. Roughly 97% said that while a season suspension was justified, the playoff suspension was overboard. For many French Canadians, it felt like an Anglophone was punishing a Francophone and this was just another example of the imbalance of power in Quebec. Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau said that the NHL was trying to kill hockey in Montreal and added, Means should have been taken to punish the hockey player himself and not resort to sanctions which involve a whole team or hockey itself in a case like the present one. And it did not take long for angry phone calls to flood the NHL office. Several fans uttered death threats against Campbell and one person said, Tell Campbell I'm an undertaker and he'll be needing me in a few days. One unnamed NHL official told Campbell he should get a bodyguard and police protection, both of which Campbell refused. As for Maurice, he was devastated by the suspension and was quoted as saying he may actually retire from hockey altogether, and that was not as far-fetched as it sounded. By that point, he'd been in the league for 13 years and was in his mid-30s. He was the all-time scoring leader in NHL history and he had already captured three Stanley Cups. This was already a Hall of Fame career. Hearing of the potential retirement, a butcher shop in Montreal put an advertisement in the Montreal Gazette stating, We're with you 100% and personally feel you were the object of a raw deal decision. Being unable to contact you personally at this time, we are, via this ad, offering you a bona fide position with our firm, selling wrapping papers, twines, refrigeration, and allied lines. The debate over the suspension even reached the House of Commons. Leon Balser, a progressive conservative member of parliament for Trois-Rivières, Quebec, attempted to introduce the issue of the suspension into parliament. This failed when there were cries of order and Louis-René Benoit, speaker of the House of Commons, stated that he could not bring up such a topic as a question of privilege. Campbell refused to cower and hide despite the backlash in Quebec and even attended the next Canadiens game against the Detroit Red Wings at the Montreal Forum on March 17th. And there have been many poor decisions in NHL history. Edmonton trading Wayne Gretzky to the Los Angeles Kings in 1988 comes to mind, but up there among the worst is Clarence Campbell going to Montreal for that game. Leading into the game, Campbell said he was not about to be pushed around by what he felt were hockey hooligans mad over a suspension he handed down. He said, I never seriously considered not going to the game. I'm a season ticket holder and a regular attendant and I have a right to go. I felt the police would protect me. I didn't consult them and they didn't advise me not to attend. Two hours before puck drop, hundreds of people were in the lobby of the Montreal Forum. Several tried to crash the gate but they were stopped by police. By the time the game started, there were 6,000 people gathered in the lobby and outside it. Marcel Bourgar, the feature editor of the station CKVL, was on hand in a mobile sound unit. He said, We were almost certain that there was going to be trouble. It was in the air. Campbell arrived midway through the first period and by then the Canadians were down 3-0 and the crowd was ready to explode. As soon as Campbell took a seat, 15,000 Canadians fans started to boo. The boos escalated into a barrage of eggs and vegetables. For six minutes straight, what amounted to a giant chef's salad fell on Campbell while the boos continued unabated. I always wondered, where did all those eggs and vegetables come from? 
Well, there's a scene in Young Frankenstein when Dr. Frankenstein, played by Gene Wilder, and his monster, played by Peter Boyle, sing putting on the Ritz to a theatre crowd. The crowd hates the performance and promptly throw tomatoes at the two performers. After filming the scene, Gene Wilder asked director Mel Brooks where the crowd got the tomatoes from, and Brooks simply responded, they brought them from home. So to answer the question, people brought potatoes, tomatoes and eggs from home with full intent of throwing the items at Campbell. At one point, an orange hit Campbell square in the back while another object knocked his hat clean off. Campbell said, I tried to avoid doing anything that would provoke the crowd. He should have realized that showing up to the game was all the crowd needed to be provoked. Unfortunately, anyone sitting near Campbell was subject to the barrage too. Jimmy Orlando, a former NHL player, took a potato to the head. One City Hall employee who had tickets near Campbell pleaded with him to go home so he could watch the game instead of being attacked, because we all know, you don't make friends with salad. Also at the forum was Maurice Richard, who saw the barrage and while he was no fan of Campbell, he said to his seat neighbour Bill Head that the fan reaction was a disgrace. By the end of the first period, Montreal was down 4-1 and the Canadiens fans were becoming more brazen. A fan walked up to Campbell and smushed two tomatoes into his chest and then ran up the forum stairs. Toronto star photographer Frank Teske turned to take a picture of the man only for a grapefruit to hit his camera out of his hands. At one point, a fan got close to Campbell while pretending to be a friend and extended his hand to him. With that hand extended and friendship, he slapped Campbell across the face. The fan then punched Campbell before he was tackled by police. As they hauled him away, he continued to struggle to get at Campbell. Moments later, at 9.11pm, there was a bang and a flash followed by smoke. Someone had thrown a tear gas bomb. It's not known who threw it, but in a weird twist of history, that tear gas bomb may have saved Campbell's life. Fans were ready to tear him apart, and the tear gas bomb cleared out the building. The chief of Montreal detectives, George Lane, said, The bomb thrower protected Campbell's life by releasing it at precisely the right moment. Of the chaos, Ottawa Journal reporter W.G. Westwick wrote, Smoke poured up, billowing straight up and then spreading through the section. Women were screaming and all near the scene either fanned out or retreated. Campbell left shortly afterwards. I've never seen as many people with tears streaming down their face. The game was immediately suspended, then the form was evacuated. Campbell sent a note to Jack Adams, the general manager of the Red Wings, stating the game was forfeited to his team. Montreal had just lost its second game in a row for the first time since November 1954, and it would cost them dearly. Meanwhile, as the crowd evacuated the forum, they met with the crowd that had been waiting outside. The streets echoed with the chants of Viva Richard and Down with Campbell. Police in the area tried to disperse the crowd away from the forum, but people started to throw things at the officers. Chief of Police Tom Leggett told his men not to go into the crowd, stating, quote, It was dangerous to rush into the crowd to get them. It was full of women and children, some of them in carriages, some in arms. It was slippery. Had we used too much force, many people might have been trampled. As it was, there were several close calls. The anger increased as there were as many as 10,000 people on the street, and things were ready to boil over. And as so often is the case, all it takes is one spark for the mob to erupt. Tensions were at an all-time high, and then someone smashed a window. This gave permission for others to do the same, and the sound of shattering glass took over downtown Montreal. Cars were overturned, and the smell of smoke filled the air as newsstands were lit on fire. Signs were pulled down and doors were torn off their hinges. 
In a 15-block radius around Montreal Forum, over 50 store windows were smashed, and their contents looted as the anger over suspension spilled into a free-for-all. Not everyone in the crowd was looking for trouble, but a few bad apples rocked the bunch, and although many Montrealers were angry about the suspension of Richard, the vast majority were not looking to trash their own city. Some in the riot didn't even care about the hockey game, the Canadians or the socio-economic conditions causing tensions to boil over. One unnamed police officer arrested a man who said he was a lumberjack from Chalk River, Ontario. When asked if he loved Maurice Richard and why he was rioting, he responded, Richard? Who's he? While Bedlam ruled the streets, inside the forum most of the players, coaches and Clarence Campbell were still waiting to get out. At 11.15pm, Maurice's car pulled up to the back door so that he and his wife could leave quietly, he said later. When I got home I listened to the ride on the radio. I felt badly. Once I felt like going downtown and telling the people over a loudspeaker to stop the nonsense, but it wouldn't have done any good. They would have carried me around on their shoulders. Maurice called his father, told him he was okay and then took the phone off the hook to avoid the constant phone calls to the residents. Clarence Campbell wouldn't get out of the building until 11.30pm. A police escort took him and his secretary, Phyllis King, out of the back of the forum as thousands of fans shouted for him at the front of the building. The Montreal Gazette reported that the forum employees were not free from attacks either, it stated. So riotous were the fans that only a few ushers would chance to move around in the lobby as pieces of ice, bottles and various other missiles came sailing through the window. At the United Cigar Store, which was on the main floor of the forum, saleswomen barricaded themselves in the stock to escape being injured by thrown objects. By midnight, the riot had ballooned to the point that police arrived with revolvers, sticks and tear gas bombs. Firefighters were also ready to use high pressure hoses on the crowd. Choosing restraint again, Chief of Police Tom Leggett stated, It might have led to a panic and hysteria, and that's when people get killed. Police kept the crowd contained to a 15-block radius as the riot continued for hours. By 3am, the rioters dispersed and left the area in shambles. A hundred people were arrested, while it's estimated there was $100,000 in damages. In 2024, that would be about $1.2 million and $68,000 of those damages in 2024 funds was from stolen merchandise in just one jewelry store. Auguste Bellinger, a 56-year-old father of four, saw his brand new newspaper stand burn to the ground. He said he had only managed to set up the business days earlier. He stated, Why did they have to do such a thing to me? 25 civilians and 12 police officers suffered minor injuries. Eight police cars along with several streetcars, taxicabs and other cars were damaged. Chief Tom Leggett said, It was the worst night I've had in my 33 years as a policeman. As news of the riot spread around the hockey world, reaction was swift and angry. Lester Patrick, the owner of the New York Rangers said, I'm astonished, I'm flabbergasted. This has never happened before in this sport anywhere in Canada and it never happened at the fights in Madison Square Garden in New York as long as I was there. Jack Adams, general manager of the Red Wings, blamed Montreal officials for the riot. He said, If they hadn't pampered Maurice Richard, built him up as a hero until he felt he was bigger than hockey itself, this never would have happened. Toronto Maple Leafs president Con Smythe said, I'm glad I'm in Florida. It's a shame a man like Clarence Campbell has to take abuse of that kind. It's terrible. While the decision by Campbell to attend the game was a terrible one, there were many who did praise him for his bravery to walk into the lion's den rather than hide. Elmer Ferguson, sports writer, wrote, We may not agree with his judgment, 
but you can't but admire the superb courage of Clarence Campbell, a man who faced death throughout World War II, to whom the heckling and the minor missiles and the torrents of verbal abuse ranging from stupid to obscene hurled his way bounced like thistle down off one who had faced shells and shrapnel. Newspaper editorials condemned the riot. The Montreal Star stated it was shameful, while the Toronto Star editorial said, it's savagery which attacks the fundamentals of civilized behavior. And blame was thrown around all sides. Some blamed French Canadians for the riot, while others blamed English Canadians for causing the conditions that led to the riot. Even Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau, who tried to convince Campbell not to go to the game, was blamed. Montreal City Councillor Frank Hanley stated the decision by Drapeau to publicly criticize the suspension of Maurice Richard actually led to the riot itself. Frank D. Corbet, a local citizen, wrote to the Montreal Star, French and English relationships have deteriorated badly over the past 10 years, and they have never been worse. The basic unrest is nationalism, which is ever-present in Quebec. Let's face it, the French Canadians want English expelled from the province. As for Maurice Richard, he was doing his best to stay out of the whole thing. One day after the riot on March 18, 1955 at 6 a.m., a reporter walked up to Maurice Richard's home and knocked on the door. His six-year-old son answered the door and said, I hope you didn't come to talk to him about hockey. Later that day, Maurice gave a statement in French and English stating, quote, Because I always try so hard to win and had my troubles in Boston, I was suspended. At playoff time, it hurts not to be in the game with the boys. However, I want to do what is good for the people of Montreal and the team so that no further harm will be done. I would like to ask everyone to get behind the team and to help the boys win from the New York Rangers in Detroit. Campbell, despite being a catalyst for the riot, refused to apologize and issued a statement where he said he had received three calls from other team owners who commended him for his decision and the way he conducted himself. He added, As far as I am personally am concerned, I haven't changed my attitude in the slightest regarding my privilege as a citizen to attend a game. An unnamed Montreal City Councillor replied to the statement by saying that Campbell should be arrested, adding, I want a warrant not only for the last night, but also if he ever sets foot in the forum again. The riot may have faded, but the consequences of the Maurice Richard suspension went on for much longer. Before the Richard riot, the Montreal Canadiens were two points up on the Detroit Red Wings for first place. After the March 17th game was forfeited to Detroit, the two teams were tied. The Canadians won their next game against the lowly New York Rangers 4-2, but lost to rivals Detroit 6-0 in the final game of the season. That loss robbed the Canadians of a first-place finish, something many thought was a sure thing if Maurice Richard had been in the lineup. As for the scoring race, Maurice's teammate, Bernie Jefferon, surpassed Maurice by a single goal in the second-last game of the season to capture the Art Ross Trophy, and instead of celebrating Jefferon's accomplishment, the Montreal Canadiens fans booed him after he scored. He said, I couldn't deliberately not score, that isn't the point of hockey. I was feeling the urge to vomit, I felt terrible. Jeffron gave serious consideration asking for a trade from the Canadiens, but his teammates Jean Beliveau and Maurice Richard offered their support and he decided to stay with the team as a result. Montreal made it to the playoffs and dispatched Boston in the first round four games to one, then they faced off against the Red Wings once again in the final. Since the Red Wings took first place during the regular season, they were given home ice advantage. This meant the first two games were played in Detroit. 
In a hard-fought series, Montreal lost in Game 7 3-1 as the Red Wings captured the Stanley Cup once more. When the next season started, Maurice Richard was back on the ice with his team, having chosen not to retire from the game he loved. Meanwhile, fans continued to boo Bernie Jeffron well into the season. The Canadians were now coached by Toe Blake, who replaced Dick Irvin who left the team at the end of the playoffs. Sadly, within a year, Irvin was dead from bone cancer. Maurice worked with his new coach to control his temper. He happened to be a former teammate from his early years in the NHL, and over the next five seasons, Maurice scored 122 goals and 240 points, earned first and second All-Star team honors, won the Lou Marsh Trophy, and two Canadian Press Male Athlete of the Year awards. He also captained the Montreal Canadiens to five straight Stanley Cups, a record that has never been broken. But he never captured that elusive Art Ross Trophy. When Maurice retired at the end of the 1959-60 season, the usual three-year waiting period was waived and he was immediately inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. For the rest of his life, Maurice continued to be a hero in Quebec and enjoyed a status few athletes, hockey or otherwise, enjoy. He became a cultural icon, not just in Quebec, but Canada. When Roche Carrier wrote his iconic book, The Hockey Sweater, in 1979, the plot centered on a young boy who wanted a Maurice Richard sweater. When his mother ordered one from the Eaton's catalog, the boy was mistakenly sent a Toronto Maple Leaf sweater. The book sold 300,000 copies, was turned into a famous National Film Board short film in 1980, which went on to win a BAFTA award for Best Animated Film. It's also one of the National Film Board's most popular works. I remember very well the winter of 1946. We all wore the same costume as Maurice Richard did, the red, white and blue costume of the Montreal Canadiens, the best hockey team in the world. We all combed our hair like Maurice Richard and we used a kind of hair glue to keep it in place. We laced our skates like Maurice Richard we taped our sticks like Maurice Richard. We cut his picture out of all the newspaper and we knew everything there was to know about Maurice Richard. A line from the book was even featured on the Canadian $5 banknote from 2001 to 2013. On March 11, 1996, when the Canadians played their last game at the Montreal Forum before moving to the Bell Centre, Maurice was given a 16-minute standing ovation when he walked onto the ice. The outpouring of love brought the former hockey great to tears. On May 27, 2000, Maurice Richard died of abdominal cancer. Richard was admitted to hospital May the 10th for cancer of the abdomen. The disease had been in remission for two years, but last week, doctors learned the cancer had spread throughout his body. Richard lapsed into a coma and tonight died in a Montreal hospital. Richard was one of the game's greatest players. He was the first man to score 50 goals in 50 games. He was a leader of the Montreal Canadiens team that won five Stanley Cups in a row between 1956 and 1960. That team is considered one of the greatest ever. Richard played his entire career with the Habs, winning eight Stanley Cups in 18 years. Richard's suspension from the playoffs in 1955 led to the infamous Montreal riots. The suspension was seen as an attack against French culture. The riots became an important event in Quebec's quiet revolution. Richard retired in 1960, but the fans never forgot him. 
There were tears in his eyes in 1996 at a ceremony marking the last game to be played at the Montreal Forum. All surviving team captains were present at that ceremony, but the longest and loudest ovation was reserved for the Rocket. Maurice the Rocket Richard, dead at 78. He became the first non-politician in Quebec history to receive a state funeral. Over 115,000 people paid their respects by viewing his lying in state at the Molson Centre. But you might be wondering, how did a hockey riot help spark one of the biggest societal changes in Canadian history? The Richard riot has taken on a new status over the years within Canadian folklore, and it's often viewed in retrospect as a sign of the growing nationalism within Quebec. In 1995, La Presse, a Montreal newspaper, wrote on the 40th anniversary of the riot, 40 years ago began one of the most dramatic episodes in the history of Quebec and of hockey. For French Canadians, the riot united them behind a cultural icon in the face of perceived injustices. The new Quebec nationalism spurred on the quiet revolution of the 1960s, which brought progressive change to the province and ended Catholic Church control. That nationalism grew over the decades and into the 1970s, leading to the election of the Parti Québécois and a call for Quebec nationhood that lasted well into the 1990s. As for Maurice Richard, he largely dismissed his own role in bringing about the Quiet Revolution. He stated, he played with many English-Canadian players and was mostly unaware of the situation in French Canada at the time. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Richard Riot. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's Wikipedia, Regina Leader Post, CBC, Ottawa Citizen, Calgary Herald, Windsor Star, Edmonton Journal, Saskatoon Star, Phoenix, Montreal Gazette, and the Ottawa Journal. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.